A couple of years ago, there was a new production of Shakespeare's Richard III in Sydney. Uh, it got great reviews, especially for Kate Mulvaney, uh, Mulvaney, who played the title role of King Richard. Uh, it was an extraordinary performance, not just because she's a woman playing the part of a man, but because she has severe scoliosis, the result of uh, treatment for childhood cancer. And she played Richard, who himself uh, had severe scoliosis. And in the play, the physical, the, the twisted physical deformity is a metaphor for the twisted personality of Richard. Uh, his deformity makes people ridicule and insult him. And in lots of ways, it, it's that treatment that makes him the person he is. Uh, it's a play about his rise to power, the way he gets rid of everybody else that's in the way, and how he controls everybody with fear and lies to gain the kingdom and then to keep it. It's a powerful portrait of a king. Powerful because it produces a response in the audience. Uh, at times the audience uh, was revolted by the character. At other times they sympathised with him because of his uh, uh, disability. They begin to understand his responses and almost to excuse them. Uh, today's verses in Matthew 14 show us something similar. They show us a powerful portrait of two kings. Two kings and two feasts. One good, one bad. And we're meant to compare them and then respond in submission and faith and obedience to the true king, the good king, to Jesus. Uh, first up, we see King Herod. He's proud, self-obsessed and evil. And his feast is purely about his own pleasure. And in contrast, we have King Jesus, the powerful, compassionate provider and saviour for his people. Uh, and his feast is about meeting their needs, not his own. It begins, though, with Jesus at the end of the previous chapter. Uh, from verse 52 of chapter 13, Jesus has arrived back in his hometown of Nazareth and word about his miracles have raced ahead of him. The sorts of miracles the Messiah was expected to do when he came. But when the people see that it's only Jesus who's the centre of all the attention, verse 57 says they, they took offence at him because this was the guy they'd seen grown up. Uh, They'd seen, they'd seen him grow up. They knew his family. And people like that didn't grow up to be king or, or to do miracles. And because of their lack of faith, Jesus didn't do many miracles there. We'll, we'll come back to that response. Uh, but meanwhile, there's another reaction to the news of Jesus' miracles. Another wrong reaction. Chapter 14, verse 1. King Herod hears these same reports of miracles... And he thinks John the Baptist has come back to life. At which point, Matthew tells us the story of, about uh, the story of how Herod had John killed. Uh, it's a story about a king and a feast, of fearing the crowd, of pride, of a head on a platter, and a buried body. And each of these details finds a contrast in the next section about Jesus and the type of kingship that he brings. This is the king 
Uh, this king is the, is the black to Jesus' white. He's the bad to Jesus' good. He's like when you go to a jeweller and the jeweller pulls out the black cloth background and puts it on the glass cabinet and then puts the rings or whatever you're looking at. It's the contrast so that you can see uh, the ring more clearly. Uh, John's been arrested because he dared to challenge Herod's lifestyle choices. We saw that back in chapter 11. Herod had married his brother's wife. It was a scandal at the time, a political as well as a moral scandal. Uh, John said it was against God's laws, so Herod threw him in jail. Herod wanted him killed, but verse 5 tells us that Herod was afraid of the crowd. He's afraid of the crowd. Uh, The feast is there in verse 6. It's Herod's birthday, and his niece is dancing for the guests. Now I can't help but think that this is a sanitised version of what actually went on. Uh, It sounds more like a bucks party. Herod was so pleased he offered the girl anything she wanted. At his mum's suggestion, she asked for the head of John John the Baptist on a platter. Verse 9, the king's too proud to back down. He gives the order and the section ends with John's head presented to the girl on a platter. Uh, and then John's disciples come and collect the body and bury it. This king is twisted. He's wicked. He's revolting. It's our first king and our first feast. The comparison comes in verse 13 with Jesus. He hears about John's death and he's grieving. So he takes a boat cruise to get away for some quiet, to spend some time with his father. He's out in the desert and yet the crowds still find him. And even though he's grieving, he doesn't demand some me time and some personal boundaries. He he has compassion on them and he heals their sick. At the end of the day, everybody's hungry. Problem is, no one's got any food left. The disciples come up with what seems like a logical solution. Verse 15, send the crowd away so they can buy food. But Jesus' response in verse 16 suggests that they should have come up with another answer. Jesus says, they don't need to go away, you give them something to eat. Which I think means something like they should have recognised that Jesus was the one to to turn to, that Jesus was the one with the solution. You give them something to eat. They say, well, we've done an inventory and and there's only five loaves and two fish, but there's going to be a feast anyway. Jesus asks for the food. Verse 19, he sits everyone down on the grass, he takes the food, he gives thanks for it, and he breaks it up. And then he gives it to the disciples who hand it out, and we don't know at what point the miracle happens, but miraculously, verse 20, everyone is satisfied. Uh, And unlike what some people want to do with this passage that said everyone just was satisfied to take a very small amount. It's a bit hard to understand how that can happen if there's 12 basketfuls of leftovers, but anyway. Uh, But what we see is that just like God provides manna for his people in the desert, Jesus provides for his people in the desert, the deserted places as well. So what sort of king is he? Well, he's far more than a human king. He's, He's a king with all the power of God himself who provides food miraculously where there is none. And maybe the disciples should have recognised that. He's got all the power of God, which should be terrifying. 
if you didn't combine it with love and compassion, which we see as well, don't we? We see that, that the power and the, the love and the compassion, it's the perfect combination. The love and the compassion to recognise a need and the power to do something about it. He's the complete opposite of King Herod. Herod fears the crowd. Jesus feeds the crowd. Herod proudly satisfies his own ego. Jesus, with compassion, satisfies his people. Herod's feast ends with a head on a platter. Jesus' feast ends with leftovers filling 12 baskets. But there's more to this portrait of a king. Verse 22, the long day is over. Jesus is still searching for some peace and quiet. He hasn't got it yet. He sends the disciples back in the boat. He sends the crowd home and then he finds a quiet spot to pray. Later in the evening, verse 24, the disciples are out in the middle of the lake. They're making slow progress. The wind's against them. The waves are making it difficult. Every two metres they go forward, they get pushed back one. There's not really anything they can do except keep rowing and battle through it. Unless, of course, you're Jesus. Verse 25. Sometime around 3am, the disciples see Jesus walking towards them on the water. Now, I think if you've been around church for a while, you just read that and it just sounds perfectly normal. But it's not. Jesus is walking towards them on the on the water. At least it looks like Jesus. But because he's actually walking on water, they think he's a ghost. And they're terrified. It's the right response, really, isn't it? Because only God controls nature like that. Just like God can only miraculously produce manna from the sky or dinner for thousands from five loaves and two fish. Only God can walk on water. That's what Job understood, Job chapter 9. Job's lost everything. He knows that God has taken it away, but he knows that you can never win an argument with God. He goes on to describe what God is like. He moves mountains without their knowing it and overturns them in his anger. He speaks to the sun and it doesn't shine. He seals off the light of the stars. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Only God can do that. It's right to fear him. It's no wonder that the disciples are terrified. They're afraid of the one who defies the laws of gravity and buoyancy and density. But Jesus calls out to them, verse 27, yeah, it's me. Be brave and don't be afraid. And so Peter, the impulsive, impetuous one, takes Jesus at his word. You've got to love Peter, don't you? He's one of those guys who acts first and then thinks. He's a bit like that. Yeah, that's me. He puts his mouth into gear before his brain. He says, verse 28, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Now, those of us who know this story well forget how ridiculous that is. Tell me to come to you on the water. Why does he pick that as the test? 
It would have been far safer and more sensible for Peter to say, Lord, if it's you, prove it by telling me what I had for dinner. I'll stay here. You just tell me what I had for dinner. Or what am I holding behind my back? Tell me that and I'll know it's you. But no, the test is to command Peter to come to Jesus on the water. He's offering himself as the test guinea pig, the test dummy. If it's really Jesus, not only will he call Peter, but he'll enable him to walk on the water just like Jesus himself is doing. But if it's not, then Peter will sink like a stone the way he would every other time he hopped out of a boat in deep water. But it's more than a test. Yes, Peter's scared, but he wants to be with Jesus. He's terrified, but he wants to be with Jesus. Now, that's the right sort of fear, isn't it? It, It's fear of Jesus that moves you towards him in reverence and love. When you're in the storm, is that the sort of fear of Jesus that you have, that you flee to him? Or do you get angry with him and blame him and move away from him? Jesus says one word, come. And Peter does. He weighs up the risk and decides the reward is worth it. He steps out of the boat and he starts walking, his eyes fixed on Jesus, and he's getting closer. But verse 30, at some point he takes his eyes off Jesus and he sees the wind, which technically you can't do. You can see what wind does. That's right, isn't it? He sees what's happening to the waves and the boat. And his faith melts and his fear takes over and he starts to sink and he cries out to Jesus, save me. Now normally people notice Peter's lack of faith, don't we? that he sinks. But, but he must have made it a fair way because, verse 31, Jesus reaches out his hand and catches him. And at the same time says, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? You nearly made it. Poor old Peter. The other disciples are in the back of the boat, are back in the boat cowering in fear. They're hiding underneath the seat while Peter has enough faith to step out of the boat and to start walking. And he nearly makes it. And yet he's the one who goes down in history as the one who doubted. Hardly seems fair, does it? Verse 32, Jesus gets him back into the boat, which I think is a bit of a miracle in itself, really. Have you ever tried getting into a boat when you're underneath the water? But Jesus manages that all right. He does because it's only God who controls the wind and the waves. The, 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 the minute he gets into the boat, the wind stops. It's God who controls the wind and the waves. Psalm 107 describes sailors who are out in a storm and they cry out to God in their trouble. And verse 28 says, He brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm. And he guided them to their desired haven. God is the one who still storms. And how do you respond when God's rescued you? Well, look at how the psalmist continues. Let them give thanks. Let the sailors give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love 
and his wonderful deeds to men. And that's what the disciples do, isn't it? Verse 33, they worship Jesus, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. They worshipped a man, good Jews, who'd, who'd grown up reciting the Shema Yisrael, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is one God. They'd grown up saying that, and yet they worshipped Jesus. They'd grown up learning the first commandment, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. They're good Jews, and yet somehow they understood that worshipping Jesus as God's son was not worshipping another god. That somehow Jesus was one with God. Uh, The God who calms storms, the God who produces food from nothing, the God who walks on the water. He's a king, but he's a king like no other king. And he's certainly nothing like King Herod, who's selfish and foolish and vain. He's the son of God and he's powerful and compassionate and generous. The perfect combination when you're in trouble like Peter. That's the portrait, but we don't just get a portrait of a king. We get to see the response that we should make as well. And it's a pretty obvious response if you think about it. When you need help and there's someone in front of you who's powerful and compassionate and generous, you should trust him. Back at the end of chapter 13, Jesus has arrived home. He comes to teach in the synagogue. Local boy made good. They'd heard about the miracles and they're amazed. They're amazed that someone as extraordinary as Jesus could become famous for doing miracles. They don't believe it because they saw him grow up and they still see the young boy with skin knees, not the Lord over sickness and demons. And verse 58 says he didn't do many miracles there, not because there wasn't a need, or not because he didn't have the power, or not because he didn't have the compassion, but because there wasn't the faith. Faith is what they needed. Because they thought they knew better, They missed out. There's plenty of people like that today who think they've worked Jesus out, who who think they've got him in a box. He's the good teacher. He's the prophet. He's the moral example. He's the failed revolutionary, the religious martyr. He's the con artist. He's the lunatic. They misjudge him. They underestimate him. And they don't trust him. And they keep a distance and they miss out. They think they're judging Jesus, but the reality is Jesus is really judging them. Uh, Blue Poles by Jackson Pollock. It's a famous abstract abstract painting in Canberra's National Gallery. You can go there and you can stand in front of it and two people can stand in front of that painting and one calls it a masterpiece and the other calls it a mess. Art experts agree with the first person, it's a masterpiece. The second person thinks he's judging blue poles. But the reality is it's the other way around. 
It's Blue Poles that's judging him. He's showing his own ignorance by not understanding it or not investigating it or not appreciating it. And that's what it's like uh, with the people in Jesus' hometown. They think they're judging him. They're offended by him. But that says more about them than it does about Jesus. They lacked faith. Instead, it's pretty obvious whose faith they should have had. It's Peter, isn't it? That's the faith we need to imitate. That's the next mention of faith. End of chapter 13, down in verse 31 of chapter 14, we get faith again. It's Peter's faith. As much as he's known for his unbelief, he's the one we're called to imitate. And as he walks towards Jesus, he's fine because Jesus is the powerful, compassionate one who rescues and provides. But when he starts instead to look around at his problems, at the wind and the waves, they suddenly seem bigger than he can cope with and he begins to sink. And we're tempted to do the same, aren't we? We look at our problems, sickness or unemployment or deadlines or breakups or financial problems and they seem huge, they seem too big for us to deal with and they probably are. But we've taken our eyes off Jesus, the powerful, compassionate Son of God, and started focusing instead on our problems. We need to learn from Peter. What does he do when he starts to sink? He looks to Jesus, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately, he doesn't scratch his chin and think about it and weigh up. He reaches out his hand and he seizes him and he holds him firm and he takes him to safety, and he calms the storm. Yes, Peter's faith was faulty, but it's not the amount of faith that counts. It's the one in whom you place that faith. That's what counts. Two people catch an aeroplane, one's petrified of flying, the other one does it all the time. Who makes it to safety? Well, they both do. It's not the amount of faith that will get you there, it's the reliability of the plane and the pilot that will get you there. It's not your faith that will get you through the storm, it's the one you put your faith in. One of my pet hates is people who say, my faith is very important to me. It's not your faith that's very important to you, it's the one you place your faith in that's very important to you. Don't say my faith is important to you. Say, Jesus is important to me. It's the same response from the men who greet the boat when it reaches land. Verse 35 says, Having known him, they sent a message to bring the sick and begged Jesus to heal them. They begged Jesus to let them touch his cloak. And all who touched were healed. That word for healed is, is the same as saved what Peter had asked Jesus to do. When we look to the powerful, compassionate king with faith, he will save you. That's the lesson. Jake's going to come and continue uh, leading us in prayer. Thanks, Jake.